Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In principle, China agreed years ago to stop sponsoring hackers carrying out industrial espionage for Chinese companies. Not only has the practice continued, it's getting more organized, even as condemnation for it grows louder and louder. And if a project got the go-ahead, was it green-lighted or green-lit? Have I gotten better at choosing, or have I gotten better? If you've ever wondered how to choose which past tense is the correct one, we've got the rules of thumb you need. But first, Georgia is in the grips of the largest anti-government protests in a decade. Demonstrators are coming out in support of former President Mikhail or Misha Saakashvili. Mr. Saakashvili is in a prison hospital. He's been on a hunger strike for seven weeks. There are allegations he's being gravely mistreated, and his doctors say he's in critical condition. Yesterday, the European Court of Human Rights demanded that his safety be ensured and that he have access to medical care. Mr. Saakashvili had been in exile in Ukraine for eight years, stripped of his citizenship by the leader of the increasingly authoritarian ruling party, Georgia Dream. He'd returned ahead of elections last month to rally for opposition politicians hoping to unseat the party, but he was immediately and very publicly arrested. Now, he's in a standoff with the government. Protests are growing larger, and Mr. Saakashvili is growing weaker. Mikhail Saakashvili is a former president of Georgia, but he is more than that. Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia and Eastern Europe editor. He is probably one of the most successful post-Soviet reformers. He came to power on the back of the first color revolution in the former Soviet space in 2003. We are not dealing with some kind of protest rallies only. We are dealing with unprecedented wave of popular discontent and we are dealing with democratic bloodless revolution. That's what it's called. Georgia was probably one of the most corrupt parts of the former Soviet Union. And Saakashvili, a 35-year-old US-educated lawyer, did something which nobody thought was possible. He really changed the mentality of the country. He modernized it. It stopped being just a former Soviet republic. It became sort of a success story. He broke with that Soviet legacy. And that's what, in the end, led Georgia and and himself into a war with Russia in 2008, when Russia attacked Georgia to prevent it from becoming a member of NATO or shifting any further into the Western sphere. And of course, he had flaws. He cut corners. Judicial system was there very often to extract money. You know, there were very few checks and balances, but he was a really important figure. 
And, and what's his situation now? So Saakashvili, as of now, he is in Georgia. He is on hunger strike. He is in a prison hospital. All this happened last month when Saakashvili went back to Georgia from Ukraine, where he had spent the previous eight years. In 2013, Saakashvili stepped down as president in Georgia after the end of his second term. He abided by the constitution. A lot of people worried that he wouldn't. He surrendered power to an oligarch, a businessman, a billionaire called Bidzina Ivanishvili, who founded a party called Georgian Dream, which he still controls. It Ivanishvili holds no official post in Georgia. He is not its president, he is not its prime minister, and yet he is the man who completely controls that country. And in 2013, Saakashvili lost power. Ivanishvili chased him out of the country with criminal cases. I saw him several times when he was in Ukraine, and you could tell he was desperate to get back to Georgia. He wanted to play a role. The country was sliding backwards and he wanted to get it back on the right track. And it was only a matter of time before he would go back. And he went back just before regional elections. I'm sure he knew he would get arrested and he was hoping that his arrest would stir protest and would wake up the country from its slumber. The allegations here, now that he is back and, and he's in a prison hospital, that he's being gravely mistreated. What, what does the government say to that? Well, Jason, sometimes I feel the government is almost sort of enjoying this show of humiliation. It's very hard to explain its actions. Otherwise, they've dragged him from a prison where he was first capped into a sort of a different prison hospital, dragged him half naked and then released that very humiliating video. And for Georgia, which is quite a traditional and old society where dignity is everything, this show of humiliation was probably sort of greater punishment than anything else they could have imagined to release that in public. Georgian prime minister said, well, Saakashvili has the right to commit suicide. He's been mistreated in a sense that he's been put in, in jail with people who suffered under his rule, his foes during his presidency. He's been barred from attending his own trial. It really is incredibly arrogant. And what the government of Georgia is doing is acting with incredible impudence. And you say that he had come back to the country to to rally the opposition ahead of elections. How how did those elections go? The elections didn't inspire really many Georgians, partly because of the success of Saakashvili's reforms and the legacy of the reforms. It's not desperate yet. You know, it's not a failing state. Saakashvili, a lot of Georgians uh, fear will uh, bring chaos, will bring revenge will again put them through the stress which any modernization involves. So the election was, was very divided. Georgian Dream did better than Saakashvili had hoped. And although people, a lot of people out in the streets in Georgia, it doesn't feel like it's a revolutionary situation. But the protests uh, against Mr. Saakashvili's treatment are, are large and growing. Where, where do you see this going? It's hard to tell. Georgians are very vocal people. They like to demonstrate. They like to protest. It's very hard to tell where it is going. I don't think it's a revolutionary situation, but obviously it is a political crisis and things in Georgia do change fast. Revolutions happen very often because of the sense of injustice in a society. And certainly with this treatment of Saakashvili, the sense of injustice is growing. But how does this political crisis, as, as you call it, fit into Georgian politics more widely? 
It's part of a bigger picture, both in Georgia and more geopolitically, because this is not just about a power struggle in a small South Caucasus country. It's about the direction of a country which is a strong or used to be a strong Western ally. Unfortunately, this government has been very much sliding back on on democracy, having come apparently to restore democracy after years of Saakashvili's, as they put it, usurping power. In fact, this government has very, very checkered record. They've arrested the head of the opposition. They tapped the telephones of MPs. They used fear. They used violence against protesters. Fear is growing along with a sense of injustice in Georgia. And although this government continues rhetorically to say it's on, on the path towards NATO membership and it belongs in the West, its actions very much suggest otherwise. I see Georgia slipping out back into sort of its old bad habits and very much back into Russia's sphere. Putin is certainly very pleased to see Saakashvili, who he hates with every fiber of his body to, to, to be humiliated and in jail. So it's, it's bigger than Saakashvili and uh, Bedzine Ivanishvili. It's about the direction of a country that in Saakashvili's years managed to break out of that Soviet orbit. And Russia does seem to be getting its way in Georgian politics as well now. Thanks very much for joining us, Arkady. Thank you, Jason. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In 2015, America's President Barack Obama and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping stood together outside the White House after striking a deal. We've agreed that neither the U.S. or the Chinese government will conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property, including trade secrets or other confidential business information for commercial advantage. For years, American officials had looked on as trade secrets found their way out of American businesses into the hands of Chinese ones. It seemed to be industrial espionage on the orders of the Chinese state, and America had had enough. But that agreement hasn't aged so well. So when Obama gave that speech in 2015, it was a time of comparative massive optimism about China's sort of place in the world stage, willingness to cooperate internationally. Hal Hodson is a technology correspondent at The Economist. There was none of this fear about trade with China. And in a way, this state-sponsored hacking of American companies was sort of one of the last big problems that maybe was in the foothills of being solved. And how have things gone in the meantime? So things did die down for a while. And the reason we know this is that large companies that have a lot of intellectual property they want to protect and a lot of servers and databases that they want to keep secure, they employ companies called threat intelligence companies to kind of monitor what's going on inside their systems and look for kind of weird stuff that looks suspicious, essentially. And those 
companies did see a reduction in attacks after that 2015 statement. Quite why, it's not totally clear whether it was the agreement or something going on domestically. But in recent years, the attacks from China have come roaring back. And this came to a head, a real head, earlier this year when Microsoft announced that it had discovered Chinese hacking groups had infiltrated hundreds of thousands of Microsoft servers around the world that were run on the behalf of small businesses, NGOs, even governments. And so in many ways, we're we're sort of back where we started. China, of course, denied it. But in the West, those threat intelligence companies looking at the patterns, it was pretty obvious that this had come from China. And is that to say that that Chinese hacking ability has, has simply got better in time? It has got better, absolutely. One of the things that the the government is doing is building an entire state-run cybersecurity university, which is all about training hackers, both for defensive and offensive activities. The attacks have certainly improved, and there was a pivot that happened internally within China that has sort of underpinned the improvement in hacking capabilities. And that is, at the time of Obama's speech in 2015, the majority of this kind of uh, corporate industrial espionage was being carried out by the People's Liberation Army, an arm of the military, and it was relatively haphazard. They were just getting instructions from the top down saying, these are your targets, and then go at it however you want. In the new regime, which is more kind of under Xi, essentially, and in particular under China's Ministry of State Security, that has become a lot more cohesive, it's a lot more targeted, and in many ways, it's a lot more difficult to track. And for those on the receiving end of the hacking then, such as America, what are they doing to, to, to counteract all of this? Well, after Microsoft announced this, this, this huge attack, pretty much all of the governments that you would call Western stood up and pointed the finger at China in unison on the same day, on the 19th of July this summer. Tonight, blaming China for cyber crimes. For the first time, the UK and European Union have accused China of carrying out a major cyber attack. Australia has aligned itself with the US, UK, and other allies to condemn China's malicious. That level of coordinated, unified condemnation, A, has never happened before. And B, it's the kind of thing that China hates. And this is because China likes to deal with countries unilaterally. And in the background, the American government is issuing indictments for all of these Chinese individuals who've been involved in this hacking. Recently, they arrested a Chinese engineer who's been trying to break into GE to steal jet engine technology. That was just a couple of weeks ago. And in July, a couple of Chinese spies were arrested for trying to steal pharmaceutical information related to COVID vaccines. In the background is, you know, a drumbeat of arrests and indictments. And when this happens, it means that these Chinese cyber folks can really never travel, definitely not to America, but maybe not even outside of China. But those are kind of after-the-fact reactions. What, what, what about this coordinated condemnation then? Do you think it'll, it'll stop these things happening in the first place? Well, probably not, is the fact. And the reason is that this kind of hacking and information gathering is just too beneficial for the Chinese government to stop doing it for a number of reasons. It's really useful for finding spies in your own midst. If you can steal a bunch of cell phone information about which messages are going where, and you can see strange patterns, and some of them connect to people in your own party or people in your own country, you can start to get a good picture about who's a spy and who's not. And that's hugely important for the CCP. And the commercial advantage of being able to gather intellectual property from other companies and hand it to either state-owned enterprise or even your own private enterprises is also a huge leg up. 
So the idea, the summary from the analysts that I spoke to about this is that until the costs become real, until it's like you're talking about sanctions or trade embargoes specifically connected to cybersecurity, the benefits of this kind of hacking are just too high to ignore. And that, you know, no amount of big words, even if they are coordinated, is going to stop it. As a tactic, what about retaliation on the part of people like the, the NSA in America? Yeah, I mean, that is kind of, that is that is mooted. So far, it has never happened. That would be an unprecedented situation. I guess the world would then be in an, an open state of cyber warfare. And really, maybe the bigger problem here is that there's no, there's no Geneva Convention for online warfare, for carrying out strikes and counter-strikes online. There's no norms underpinning any of this. And so it's like, what about retaliation? Yes, that, that would certainly be a way to disincentivize things. But that first strike has not yet happened. And it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation. You need to have the fight before you can set the rules of the fight. And the real fight has not actually yet started. How do you see the world going as we get past this, this chicken and egg point? Well, for the foreseeable, the arms race is going to continue. Companies are going to get better at protecting themselves. And the, the offense is going to get better at breaking into them. And in a lot of cases, in order to do that, they're going to have to be sneakier and quieter and a lot more focused. You can't be loud and brazen anymore if you're going to do this because they're going to catch you and they're going to stop you. But until the rules of the game change, until the incentives change, while it's just, you know, the West condemning with a unified voice, the reality is going to be that if... Chinese hackers want to access Western companies and steal information, they're going to find a way. Hal, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. The deal was green lit. Hmm. Is that right? Uh, the deal was green lighted. Hmm. Well, one of the two has to be right, but which is it? If only we had a language expert around here. Wait a second. People can sometimes feel as though they're almost seeing double when they see two different forms of a verb, for example. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column, about language. The verb greenlight, to greenlight something, has at least two past tense and two past participle forms. Those are greenlit and greenlighted. Some people will have noticed there are two forms. Other people haven't, but they feel strongly that one form is definitely the right one. But the thing is, there are two competing forms for this. And how can that be? Why is that? Verbs can end up having two past tense forms for a variety of reasons. In this case, people have two different competing, even if unconscious, ideas of where the verb to green light, which also works like the verb to gaslight, comes from. So one reason a verb might have two past tenses or two past participles is just dialectal variation. So, for example, in Britain, you'd say that a word is spelt with an LT. And in America, words are spelled with an LLED. Another reason you have variants is that languages change over time. For example, the verb sneak only had one past tense, which was sneaked for a long time. But starting in the 20th century, we start to see the alternative form snuck sneaking into the language, and it has become even more common in Google Books data. In about 2009, snuck overtook sneaked 
as the most common past tense form of the verb. So of all of those different reasons, then, what's going on with, with gaslight and green light? Well, these are actually slightly different examples. This is an unusual case in which speakers, and usually unconsciously, have in mind two different ideas of where the word comes from. So if you say gaslit as the past tense of to gaslight, that means you're working on the premise that to gaslight comes from the verb to light, as in to light a street or to light a candle. Since the past tense of that is lit, then the past tense of gaslight becomes gaslit. But gaslight doesn't come from the verb to light, as in to illuminate. Gaslight means to manipulate someone by psychological means into doubting their own reality. It comes from the name of a play called Gaslight, which spawned two movies. So when people started using gaslight as a verb, they started using it this peculiar way that came directly from the noun, that is the name of the movie. And the trick here is that According to a sort of unwritten rule, when you coin a brand new verb, such as one formed from a noun, it is always regular. Wait, how does that work? So, for example, if I make up a search engine company and I call it something silly like Google, and then that becomes famous, and you coin a verb to Google off the back of that search engine, then the past tense will be regular. You'll say Googled, and your past participle will be regular, and you'll say I have Googled. You won't make it into something with a vowel change like I Google, I goggle, I have goggle. Ugh, so, so many rules and exceptions and trends here. What's going on with green light then? Well, green light really works a lot like gaslight. It doesn't come from the verb to light, meaning to illuminate with green light. It means to give a green light to. The green light, of course, is just a metaphor for some kind of official approval. So it, too, is formed from a noun phrase, the green light. And so using the same logic, if it's a verbed noun, it is regular. And so by that logic, the past tense is I green-lighted the project, and the past participle is, I have green-lighted the project, or the project has been green-lighted. Okay, so from now on, I won't use green-lit. Well, you're not going to look silly if you use gas-lit or green-lit, because according to some polls and searches I've done, they're basically about half and half. So quite a lot of people have formed that past tense on the belief that green-light and gas-light are compounds of the verb to light, and they're both out there. It's not impossible that gaslit will win the competition over time and edge out gaslighted, just like snuck has now outcompeted sneaked. Uh, so these things do happen, but if that happens, that's an irregularity creeping in the language because gaslight and greenlight really should be regular verbs and their past tenses should be, in my view, gaslighted and greenlighted. And I'm not gaslighting you. Lane, thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.